This time it's special because you're new. Half the audience are going to go, oh, it's Erica Sidun. Half the audience are going to go, who the heck's Erica Sidun? Welcome to season two, episode one of Swift Over Coffee. I'm Paul Hudson. Oh, and I'm Erica Sidun. Uh, as you might imagine, listeners, this is a big change for season two. Uh, Sean is increasingly focusing on his uh, new gaming empire. That's awesome. Good luck, Sean, on Twitch. Uh, and I thought, who else better qualified to take Sean's uh, shoes, his spot, than Erica Sadoon, long, long, long time author and contributor in the Swift community. She's done, I believe, more evolution proposals than anyone else in the entire community, including everyone at Apple. She's written books about Objective-C and Swift, uh, including Swift Style, my personal favorite. And you were even hacking on, I think, on iOS stuff before it was even an SDK, right? Is that right, Erica? It is, in fact, true. I do have history pre-App Store. Pre-everything, I think. <laughs> you're, the, you're the prehistoric iOS developer, almost. But I just happened to get very lucky with that. Some people put together a compiler, and I happened to be there at the right time, the right moment. So I was able to start developing for iOS, or as they called it back then, iPhone OS. It was a very lucky coincidence. Well, so much of what you do does come down to luck, I think, doesn't it? You know, it's very rare that you're entirely self-made. We stand on the shoulders of giants. So I get to start off by talking about the news. You do. I think uh, the fact that Swift 5.2 snapshots that are now available is mm. a pretty exciting thing. Very exciting, yeah. The snapshots do not mean that everybody has access to them yet. You do have to download them and install the packages so that you have access to these tool chains. Am I wrong? You're exactly right. I mean, they're what, about a gig each, I think. Um, but they are the current like bleeding edge Swift 5.2 build that will be public in about, what, six weeks or so, maybe? Something like that, yeah. And you have to understand that you do need to access them from Xcode and specifically request the toolchain even after you've installed it. Mm. But it gives you early access to things that have made it into the build that have not yet made it into Xcode. So that's always fun to work with. And what are the killer, killer features this time, Erica? You know, surprisingly enough, there's less killer and more just filling in the backlog. There are two types of things that go into a release. There's a combination of Swift Evolution, which are new features, and the SR stuff, which is basically the bug reports that have now been fixed. Uh, one of the things that has now made it into Swift 5.2 is that it used to be when you called a bunch of filters in order that if they were lazy, if you were working with lazy things, they would be evaluated in reverse, which is kind of anti-intuitive and that's been fixed. Well, it is counterintuitive, but presumably that's a breaking change. It is, in fact, a breaking change. You know, just because something is, gosh, why is this doing it this way, doesn't mean that it's not going to have profound effects on whoever was doing it, especially those people who worked around the fact that things didn't work in the way that you expected them to. Yeah, I mean, if something, if something is wrong like this, if it wasn't right, but it was the standard of behavior, it becomes the de facto <laughs> standard behavior, doesn't it? 
<laughs> well, now filtering predicates will be called in the same order if they're lazy as if they were eager. So you're going to have consistency, and this is new to 5.2. So yay, mm. that's new. Subscripts can now declare default arguments. Did you know that? I knew it, but I didn't quite care. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's quite a bit of that in 5.2. And that's mostly important when you have multiple subscripts. I know, but it, it feels like... Um, I remember Slava tweeting a lot about... Uh, well, basically the mess of Swift 3. You know, to get Swift 3 all the changes that people like you evilly put through to make Swift 3 a different language. I know. Because I think it was like 90-odd changes were put into uh, Swift 3. Yeah. And it took them a while to clean up that because they were rushing to get Swift 3 to ship on time. <laughs> and I suspect that 5.1 had lots and lots of changes and had to absolutely ship on time so Swift UI could ship, so iOS 13 could ship. And as a result, I think Swift, Swift 5.1 potentially bit off more than they could chew. So 5.1 is a fix-it-up undo, clean up, you know, all the technical debt being paid off now, and then a few small things. I don't think you're wrong. And for the last few weeks, I've been deeply considering, it's sort of my conspiracy hat on, of how many proposals got pushed into happening just so that we could have Swift UI. Oh yeah, totally. It's interesting going back and looking at the rejected ones too, things that didn't get through all got deferred, for example, commas in new lines in arrays, or SE250, the Swift style, because now they want to generate Swift code as you drag stuff around. So retrospectively, you think, oh, this is a real Swift UI all over the place. Well, property behaviors, which became property wrappers, it just sat there for years. It wasn't rejected, it was just deferred. And then suddenly property wrappers arrived, and there they were in Swift UI. Yeah, picking up speed. <laughs> I really like property wrappers. I know. I wrote a chapter about them. In what? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wrote it in this exciting new book that is now available for purchase called Swift for Good. Mm. And as the title suggests, this is Swift reaching beyond the mere technical to try to have a greater impact in the world, to do things that are a positive change, and it is actually a fundraiser for a very special cause. And I think Paul has some more information about that cause. <laughs> well, I've been working on this thing for the last uh, 15 or 14 months or so. So I'm really glad it's finally shipped now. So Swift for Good, um, it's 20 authors writing one chapter each about whatever they think is most topical, most germane, most interesting to the Swift developer of today. And as Erica said, she wrote about property wrappers. I did uh, Swift UI. Uh, ben Sherman did networking, for example. There's a huge range of topics. And all the money for this book, all the sales, minus you know the PayPal transaction costs or similar, uh, goes to a charity called Black Girls Code, who are a US-based charity doing workshops and after-school clubs to help under-indexed communities get access to high-quality, free programming tutorials. And we've already raised, it's been on sale, what, a week or so, we've already raised $55,000. It's astonishing. And one of the wonderful things is if you take a look at the cover, it says Swift for Good 1. Mmm, yeah. Grand plans. That I was very moved by that. Well, I'd like to think that not only could Volume 2 happen or Volume 3 potentially in the future, with similar or same or different authors, I'm not really sure how it would work yet, but there's no reason why the model, now it's been proven, should be restricted to Swift. Why not have uh, Kotlin for good? 
or JavaScript for good or project management for good or whatever. The, the concept is find 20 trusted subject matter experts who love writing, love communicating the ideas they have and saying, let's do this for charity. Let's do it you know, so we aren't just profiting all the time. Get it somewhere good and make a real difference. I am so proud of you for having done this. Aww. It really is just awesome. And there were so many loose ends. And the fact that you were able to bring this all together and the fact that it's real and is something that can be bought today and be pointed at and it's just turning that idea into something tangible is just an amazing thing. And I'm really grateful that you you pushed this as hard as you did. Mm. And to continue with news, let me tell you what else is happening. Um, Apple has always been clear in its guidelines that it doesn't want apps in the App Store that are basically web pages. If an app can function as a web page, it shouldn't be an app. That's since day one, right? Hasn't been since day one, but it's certainly been since day 600 or something like that. And what's interesting about that is the pushback. Anyone who has gone and, you know, done consults and freelancing and so forth, if you talk with people and you say, okay, so what you're asking me for is basically a web page, and they go, yes, because they, they perceive an app as a status symbol. We have an app in the App Store, even if it's essentially the same as a web page. And there's this notion that somehow having an app gives you prestige, it gives you reality, it gives you something, you know, look us up in the app store. And that has always seemed very odd to me. And I don't really understand the motivation of why an app is somehow so much more significant, especially when there's almost never additional value added by the app. Is it perhaps because the experience of most websites is utterly hideous. Yes, the experience of many websites is utterly hideous. But then again, the experience of many apps can be utterly hideous too, especially when they're essentially just wrapping a bad website. <laughs> Web pages, exactly. Yeah, they're even worse, aren't they? You get the worst of both worlds. Hooray. I don't really see it, but I do interact with the people who are insisting we want an app. We have it in our plan. You know, the board of trustees has agreed to move forward with an app. But there's nothing app-like about what they want to deliver in terms of information. Right. And Apple has made a strong statement, once again, <laughs> this isn't the first time saying, if it's a web page, make it a web page. If it's HTML5, make it HTML5. And it's I think coincidental that this push is coming just as we're seeing the sunsetting of UI WebView. Ah, because I was wondering why now? Why are they pushing this again now? Do you think UI WebView is the key? I suspect it's completely coincidental. I don't have a conspiracy hat on for that one. <laughs> I think it's just <laughs> I think it's just on its way out. I think, you know, WK WebView has just, you know, it's trending. I think we there was a, a point where, you know, a year or so after React Native launched, everyone said, "Oh, yeah, this is this is the future. This is gonna this will be the one that kills native app development." And they've been saying that for a very very long time, and it hasn't happened yet. And of course, Flutter is the cool new thing that will totally absolutely kill native development and won't. Yeah. Um. And maybe except it's from Google. Oh yeah, which means it it'll be killed by Google first. It will be killed by Google first because Google has the attention span of a three-year-old. 
Yeah, they'll kill it and move the team across to make a new messaging app, I expect. And now is the time, Paul, I'd like to talk about picks. So my pick this episode is property wrappers and not particularly just broadly property wrappers because I know you like those and you wrote about those and so for good. Um, But I did a talk in Singapore last week about property wrappers because the the talk was called Global Variable Oriented Development. Uh, And it's this this new thing I'm trying to push, you know, forget this whole functional, forget this whole uh, protocol, OOP, global variables where it's at. Uh, And uh, I was talking about how we spent a long time in Swift Finding this sort of Swifty setup where we had structs for data and uh, classes for views. And this worked really, really well in UIKit because, of course, all of UIKit, all of AppKit, WebKit, AppKit, strike and so forth, they're all about inheritance from UIView, UIView controller, and so forth. Whereas with data, we wanted, you know, inert, empty, simple types, holdings and values, and not much more. And that worked really well for us as a sort of Swifty uh, approach to stuff. Um, but of course, it became problematic because we had to share data somehow between our application. So how can we do it? And the sort of naive solution is to say, hey, I'll just make some shared data over here. We can read and write from anywhere on our app. And hurrah, you've entered global variables. But there are many downsides of global variables. And so, you know, your experienced coder would say, well, actually, uh, I've read the Gang of Four book. I, I, uh, I'm going to put this in a class, give it a private initializer and say, actually, it's not a global data. It's a singleton. And that's, of course, way better. Uh, not just a fancy name for a global variable. Um, and that, you know, vaguely works better. And of course, you end up with multiple singletons. We have a singleton for settings, singleton for bundle, singleton for logging, for analytics, for core data, for networking, da da da. But these are not necessarily terrible things. They're gatekeepers. But how we manage them is interesting. So we end up with lots of singletons, and one common solution to avoid injecting many, many things into each initializer is to have an environment singleton, a super singleton, a singleton of singletons. Uh, and that's, uh, of course, what the the Kickstarter approach is, often um, now used by the point-free people. And there are advantages to that as well. But either way, we all agreed, classes of views, struct after data, that was how it worked in, in UIKit. And of course, SwiftUI comes along and makes one fundamental change that our classes are now used for our data and our structs are used for our views. So it kind of flips the whole paradigm around uh, and it now means that multiple views can share the same piece of data. And SwiftUI says, well, when you want to share things across many views, what you want to do is put all your stuff into some shared environment out of the way. And they've basically reinvented the idea of uh, shared state global variables go into the environment and they're shared everywhere in the application. So this is, this is you know, a surprise at first because you're like, well, this is going to cause all sorts of problems. But it does work very nicely because, of course, SwiftUI keeps its models up to date for us. And what I started doing was I, I basically reverse engineered the environment object property wrapper from SwiftUI for use in UIKit. So you can make these global variables that do get shared everywhere in your app and propagate through the app when they are changed. So that's my pick, how you can reverse engineer SwiftUI's environment for use in UIKit thanks to property wrappers. It's really, really low touch and code. So let me see if I understand this correctly. Your pick is to take something overly complicated and freakishly large and re-engineer it so it's still extremely complicated and freakishly large, but cooler. Uh, yeah, it's way cooler. <laughs> I think it's one of those things that uh, because SwiftUI is doing it, 
we're now mentally rearranging our sort of brain space to accept that as, an, uh, as a good answer to how do we share data. And when you try and do it in UIKit, you realize you can't. It's not available at all in UIKit. Mm -hmm. So it becomes very, very hard to share the concepts between UIKit and SwiftUI. So I basically made this as a proof of concept. How hard would it be to get the SwiftUI style data sharing exactly the way SwiftUI does? The future of our development, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. How to get that working in UIKit? And the answer was, with property wrappers, about 70 lines of code. And at the call site, you just do at global before your, your properties, and it'll do all the rest for you in exactly the same way. It's surprisingly easy. And in which you just burst all notions of encapsulation. Yeah, and that's, and you know, at the end of the talk, I sort of said, you know, listen, in this talk, I'm not trying to say SwiftUI's solution is a good idea. I'm not arguing for environments or environment for singletons. <laughs> I'm not arguing for that full stop. I'm just saying, if you like that approach, if you want that same approach in your own code, awesome. Just do this, this, and this, and you've got exactly the same thing. And there are all sorts of downsides. You know, you still have to worry about, uh, you know, race conditions between uh, threads and so forth. Concurrency is still the usual singleton nightmare it always has been. Um, and you still have, you know, namespace pollution and similar. But property wrappers, and actually it's interesting because in the talk, I sort of walk through the solution for this. And you're learning about property wrappers, but you're also learning about reflection and mirroring, mm -hmm. which is in there as well. And there's, there's some combine in there. So by trying to re-implement SwiftUI's solution, you're learning actually quite a lot of different parts of the system at the same time. Every time I touch reflection and mirroring, I feel that somehow I have failed. If I am reaching for those as tools, it means that I have probably made some assumptions or gone down a garden path that I probably ought not to have. Right. So I end the talk by saying, you know, if global variables are your answer, you're asking the wrong question. <gasps> that is beautiful. But it's totally true because... That's tweetable. They, well, obviously, I, I think in tweets. <laughs> um, but it's, that's what I'm trying to say is that I'm not trying to judge the validity of SwiftUI's environment. That's a very big, complex question because it, you know, it can make hidden dependencies all over the place. That's what it's kind of doing for us. Mm -hmm. um, and that isn't great for testing and so forth. But if you're looking at SwiftUI, you know, you're pining over the environment, really wishing you had it, actually you can in about 70 lines of code. And fairly simple code too. No, but that is brilliant and it's fun. And it's, even if you're playing in the mud, why not bring something to learn from it? It's definitely muddy. Anyway, what's your pick, Erin? <laughs> <laughs> My pick isn't nearly as cool as yours. Oh. My pick is weird. My pick is totally, totally weird. It is the new feature that allows you to call instances as functions. Yes. Is that not the craziest, weirdest feature ever? I, I've, I've got it in code. I've been trying it out and I'm saying, yep, it definitely works. Nope, I literally can't think of a time I want to do that. <laughs> and the thing is that the notion behind it is that right now you can subscript things, right? Yes. Subscripting is essentially saying, we have a contract that what, what I have is somehow indexable. Mm -hmm. But it really is nothing but calling functions. And if you're going to have one, why not have the other? Right. So you can have an integer and you can call a function on the integer. So you can say, you know, let i equal one and then say i, you know, of, and, and pass it some parameter or parameters. It's, it's just freakish. It's mind-bending. And 
I'm just fascinated by it more than I can come up with actual use cases. <laughs> it's sort of like, this thing is here. I'm not sure why it's here, but I need to use this. This is just too cool to leave by the side. I'm trying to get it in my head, uh, you know, to, to place it more clearly, how this differs from the dynamically callable stuff that was introduced back in Swift 5, because it's basically a static version of that, isn't it? I think so. Well, but perhaps first outline literally the implementation. What does this look like to do this? You implement a function, and this is one of the magic name things, and we're seeing more and more magic names pop up in the language, and that makes me sad. We are, yeah. I'm very unhappy about some of these magic names. This magic name is call as function with, you know, camel case. And if you put it into your type definition, then when you create an instance of the type, you can just take the symbol that's bound to that instance and then put parentheses after it and arguments. And it will be as if you had typed the symbol followed by dot, followed by a function name, followed by you know the arguments. Yeah, so to be absolutely clear for folks who are listening on to our conversation here, if you have a method called call as function with any parameters you like, mm -hmm. you could either do my type or my object dot call as function with those parameters, or just call the object directly. And it'll do the same thing as calling a method called call as function. That's why it's called a magic method name because it looks for exactly something called call as function which is magical and therefore usually bad. Magic is never a good thing. And there's something similar in property wrappers. Um, there are actually two of them. One is the projected value. And it's like, where did they come up with this? It just seems that if you're putting something in and it has a special name and it's not part of the core language, but it kind of is part of the core language, it just seems messy. Well, particularly here, because normally the Swifty approach here would be to say, yes, you can have callless function, but only if you conform to a protocol, making it clear that you have callless function. And that isn't required here. No. Same thing with, you know, at property wrapper. You add in a wrapped value, and that's a magic name. Mm. And if you don't have it, it will, it will prompt you. The compiler will say you didn't include that. But it won't prompt you. There's no way to guess anything about the projected value. Right. So here we have the compiler, which is a kind of extended the language, but it extended in the most, I don't want to say gross, disgusting, and ugly, or wart-laden, or pimply, but it kind of is all those things. It's not elegant, and it bugs me. No, the examples I've given for this on evolution to me, nearly all read as that should be an initializer. Parsing a string into a tree, I think was one of the examples. And it was like, mm -hmm. create your parser and now call the parser directly as opposed to doing parser.parse, you just call parser directly as a function. Mm -hmm. For me, you'll just say, well, make a new parser and pass the string in as a parameter and initialize it and get the same result. Now I have a conspiracy theory here though. <laughs> Is this the run running theme for the Eric episodes? <laughs> yes, I know. My conspiracy theory about this is that Swift evolution has too much bike shedding and that everybody burnt out from the bike shedding. And so that we're seeing changes now after everybody just kind of rage quit <laughs> from too much bike shedding so that these are under bike shedded. Okay. And had they been bike shedded, they would have much more elegance. So Swift 5.1 finished off a lot of people and they've just walked away basically. 
Well, yeah, something like that. Mm. I think the timeline is slightly longer than that because many of these chains, for example, the one with um, call as function, that's almost a year old. It just didn't hit the language until now. Right. So I think the issue of Swift Evolution burnout hit over the last year or so. And so we're seeing these magic things come into the language that just sort of are weird growths. Well, that's interesting. That would coincide with some very heavily bike-shedded evolution proposals. For example, result went through a heck of a lot of discussion. <laughs> the simpler it is, the more there's people can have an opinion. Yeah, and, and raw strings particularly had a lot of back and forwarding ah. um, before it finally happened. So, But I, I was there with raw strings and it got better and better and better. Oh, I don't think result got better and better and better. Result, everybody knew what it was on day one. Yeah. That everybody had to have an opinion about it, but it still more or less stayed exactly the same as it was on day one. Whereas raw strings, each evolution got better and better and better until it became quite beautiful. Okay, so for callless function, it obviously happened now. It's shipping as final in a month, six weeks or so. Mm -hmm. Do you think you're going to use it? I see it completely as a technical curiosity that's not necessary for the language and is one of those things that is clever without being profound. Is it clever? <laughs> it's intended to be clever. The best proposals, the best changes to the language not only have excellent examples in the proposal, right. but people are constantly making suggestions for additional ones. I think the best proposals are the ones that inspire people, that allow them not only to have good examples in the proposal itself, but that other people see this idea and they start going, oh, here's another idea, here's another idea, here's another idea. Mm. And that's what happened with the second revision of Property Wrappers. And of those, my absolute favorite one that got put into the uh, second proposal as an addition was the one which ties properties to the uh, user defaults. Yeah. So when you assign a property, you assign a value, it automatically, as a side effect, syncs with user defaults. That's brilliant. Okay. Well, that's one of those things, perhaps, that maybe when Swift 5.2 ships and dubdubs 20 happens, they'll announce some amazing new other things that happen to make it completely required to have these callless functions. We're going to see. And now it's time for our open ballot, where you, the listener, get to have your input on the podcast. This time we ask the question, if you could change one thing about Swift UI, what would it be? And we normally get a lot of responses for open ballot. We got a particularly lot this time, which tells me that folks clearly care. Uh, so I've had a look through and picked out what I think the most interesting. And let's launch off with some about functionality. JK Cross asks for a position XY modifier they can move the view relative to the top left or bottom instead of always center. Besha Al-Malay asks for animation callbacks or the ability to chain animations like an unfinished handle we have in a UI kit. We have Magnus Jensen saying the very limited range of adaptive system colors because there are a lot more in core UI kit like grays and backgrounds. And Ishabar says, I'd really love text views. That's a pretty fundamental UI element that's notably missing. So I actually have a list of radars or feedbacks now they're called that I'm going to file any day now when I finish my current chunk of work. 
And the position one is actually on that list already because you can move things around, but it's always centered. I won't be able to say, hey, center here, but also alignment top left or bottom right and so forth. That's on my list. Chaining would be nice. Because right now you can do animations very badly by delaying them by hand and hoping for synchronization. But it's, it's pretty grim, right? Do you think that the position thing has something to do with the fact that the Macintosh has a different coordinate system than iOS? No. I love your decisiveness. <laughs> well, I, I think they obviously ran out of time. You know, we're here in iOS 13.3. We're now, what, seven months after the first initial beta came out. And it's still very, very broken in places, still missing some fairly fundamental things. Uh, and there's still some really serious bugs in there that people assume is just bad coding. When it's not, it's just actual bugs. So I think it just ran out of time on that front. The colors thing, that's a, that's a weird omission, surely, because... UIKit did get a full range of semantic colors, multiple levels of gray, for example, and we didn't. I wonder if that's a permanent thing or they ran out of time again. I just don't know. Honestly, it's what you said. I think that we're dealing with a very immature system that just needs time to grow up. I think we're going to see a lot of changes, a lot of maturing as we approach the next iteration of SwiftUI. I think we just have to wait. Do you think it'll all be additive in SwiftUI too? I don't think it's going to only be additive. Apple has a history of realizing when they've made bad choices and they don't care about breaking code. Well, no, I think, I think we all recognize that. And in some respects, I'd rather they broke code and got it to where it needed to be to make the whole thing easier to handle. Mm -hmm. Fine, if they break some fairly fundamental stuff, it's going to annoy a lot of people. But that's a short-term problem versus long-term living with suboptimal APIs, let's call them. I'm still having Swift 1, 2, 3 PTSD. <laughs> and always will. We had a couple of answers here from folks who uh, really want more power in the declarative approach of Swift UI. Uh, Benedicto Hechte from the excellent Contravariance podcast said, add a way to query view types. It should not be so hard to figure out what the size of a particular view is, save a size alignment or various other use cases. Uh, I love the word should in there, but it's a good choice. <laughs> and Majid Jabrailov said, SwiftUI follows a functional approach where the view is a function of some state. Yes, we know. But the navigation component hides side effects under the hood. I want to see navigation as a function of some root. Whenever you change the root, SwiftUI should navigate to another view. Those both sound pretty communal to me. Yeah, but it's, 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 they both said should. <laughs> They've both used the word mm -hmm. should. I love the word should because it hides all sorts of complexity. This should be happening. This should not be happening. Well, we know it should be happening. We should know it should be happening. Making them actually happen is more challenging. And having Apple do a effectively a router on our behalf would significantly change the current SwiftUI architecture, perhaps for the better. It's interesting going back to looking at a view and thinking about it as something more than a declaration of how it looks and behaves to something that is tangible with a life cycle. Because things like measurement and so forth are very life cycle-y. Querying something, it means it's something tangible that persists. Right, but you know, in SwiftUI already, we have ways to bind uh, sliders or switches to bindings in our code. Of course we do. Mm -hmm. Is there not really a way of saying, hey, uh, this has the ID of FubarBaz, which you can do already using ID modifier, and then add a binding that says read always or bind always this size of this ID to this at state property. 
I think this calls for a metaphor, something about having something and turning it into cake as well. Having your state and eating it. There's got to be a way to finish that that's more family friendly. Benedict, Erica says, no, you can't have it. Think of something else. Next up, we have some suggestions here about tooling. E. McDonald says, I don't know if it's exactly SwiftUI or if it's Xcode, but for me, it'd be correct auto indentation when you add modifiers to a view. Pavel Made asks for, the main issue is error reporting. You never know what broke your view because errors appear. Some lines are below or above. And Mihai Leonte says, documentation was the biggest point for me. The tutorial was really cool and well done, but too small. We're lucky to have a really great community with amazing devs such as yourself who are helping in this regard. Ian, I can only agree. Indentation thing really, really grinds my gears. It took me a long time to find a format I actually didn't hate. Even now I'm thinking, do I still hate that? I'm not quite sure. You know, it's dislike at best. Uh, the error reporting, yeah, wow, because it's basically just a binary chop, isn't it? Just take some code out, that doesn't work. Take some more code out, oh, that works. It's somewhere in there. It's painful, right? It's invocational and magical. <laughs> and if you aren't sacrificing chicken entrails, perhaps you're not doing it right. <laughs> the problem with documentation is that because they have automatically generated this stuff, they include things at so many levels that any Swift UI documentation page is covered with so much boilerplate that it's almost impossible to find the things that are unique and specific to that particular type. Mm. And that is so incredibly frustrating. Yeah, and the same is true for code completion too. You get access to every modifier for pretty much every view. Not not every single one, but the vast majority. And that's this is basically Apple's long-term documentation coming back to bite them in the backside, really, because it made sense when you had UI view or UI table view control or whatever it is, because it would see the stuff see there inherited from whatsoever and look at their stuff and navigate your way through. But now it's all protocols. They all get everything effectively or almost everything. It's just one big jumble of unsorted signatures, really. And honestly, if I didn't realize how bad it was to try to write books in the Apple sphere, because I know that if I did this, it would be out of date in about two minutes, I would go in and just redo the documentation for everything to do with SwiftUI, because I just think it's really broken. Well-intentioned, but broken. I have dabbled with the idea of riskily, because Apple could easily take this thing down, re-recording their WWDC talk using new SwiftUI. So it's not bindable object anymore, it's observable object, for example. And otherwise, same slides. I mean, I could redraw them perhaps to avoid the copyright issue quite so much, <laughs> but it's still within the remit of Apple be very unhappy, Apple take it down, they'd, they'd hate me, I'd never get invited to WWDC again. That's also another issue, which is so much of the tools and support that was initially put out there to help people get going, it aged badly. Yeah. And that's a pity. Moving on, we have some answers here about the big picture. Will Taylor says, I'd like to have Apple distribute the updates to SwiftUI as a library instead of with the OS, similar to how Android works. If that was the case, new features wouldn't be locked to OS versions. So that means things like collection views and text views, presumably. And Chris Dapps Grimberg says, Apple comes out from the dark and explains how they're using SwiftUI to build large apps. Small examples look cool, but how about huge apps? Are they using MVC or something else? I think the technology is cool. There are so many limitations currently to switching. 
I would be really surprised if there were not some sort of architecture talk at the upcoming DubDub. And the problem with Apple Talks is that they almost always end up building this huge application that, and they spend a lot of time talking about how pretty it is and not quite enough time talking about the core idea. Of course, that keeps us in business, you know, when, you know, people who are doing tech writing, but I'd love for them to do a really, a series of talks if needed of how do you take this technology from very simple to spanning a complex application? Yeah, I think the bigger problem is that DubDub presents everything, absolutely everything, as a fait accompli. Mm -hmm. We've done the legwork for you. We've been through the trials and tribulations and her trial and error, whatever it is. This is our answer. This is our technology proposal, our code, our sample code, our slides, our live coding, whatever it is. This is our architecture. Mm -hmm. When really what I care about is the workings. Mm -hmm. What did you try? Why did that fail? What did you try next? Why did that fail? What lessons did you take from both of those things to make the third approach and so forth? Because, you know, I've, I've been through MVC. I've been through MVVM. I've tried even coordinators in SwiftUI. I've tried these things and I've said, you know, this one doesn't really fit very well. This one kind of sucks. And... Mm -hmm. But in doing so, in, in screwing up in all these various and interesting ways, I've got a stronger idea of, of, of what is a good idea. And so right now I am writing a lot about SwiftUI architecture because I am writing down the wrong turns as well. Because that's as interesting for me as the right turns. Because, of course, there are a thousand project approaches out there, 10,000 perhaps, and what works in me will not work for you, will not work for somebody else. So I can show you, hey, here's MVVM. Here is MVC, here's MV, here's what I'm calling SwiftUI's approach and similar. Mm -hmm. Try them all. See which works for you and your code. I do want to give credit where credit is due. And Apple did hire quite a lot of people like Nate Cook and so forth to redo tutorials, documentation, and so forth. And what we've seen of that has been superb. And one to finish on from my friend Federico Zanatello. He says, I'd love to see it open source. Not only would most likely see some of the best Swift code out there, but it'd also enable the community to bring SwiftUI support to other platforms such as the web. Ooh. Everyone, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. It has been an absolute gas talking with Paul. And before we head off, I want to tell you about our next open ballot. And specifically, I'd like to know, when do you think an app should be an app? And when do you think it should be a web page? Do you have some strict rules for this? Are there some that are more shirt of your collar or just guesses or things like that? Let us know. Well, obviously, I believe in maximum employment for Swift developers. So I want to see everything being an app. Let's have everything being an app and just close down the web entirely. Done. Apps are finished. Okay. Sounds good to me. <laughs> And, and we're done. It was that easy. You see, it's, it, it's that totally really is that easy. But you know what? Everyone who's listening, we're going to see you next time. And we can't wait. Till next time, I'm Erica Sadoon. And I'm not. Bye. Bye.